Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Anne Brannan, and I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Maryland, the most medieval state in America. Uh, You may have noticed that our recording did not show up at the usual time, and that is because we had technological difficulties, which involved one of us having a new computer and not realizing that the factory had set the recording volume at 33%, which really isn't enough to actually make any noise. And so it took us a while to figure that out. Okay, it was me. It was my computer. It took me a while to figure it out. It was me. Michelle had nothing to do with it. It was all my fault. No, the the previous technical difficulties were my fault with having my microphone set up wrong, but this time I'm innocent. No, she's totally innocent. <laughs> that, that's a weird choice for the factory setting to be so super low. Yeah, and I didn't know it. I didn't realize it until I tried to do the sound editing and discovered that I was in many places completely inaudible, which wasn't actually good, really. <laughs> and it couldn't be fixed. It wasn't one of those things because if you made it louder, if you if you upped the if you, if you upped the volume at all, well, it got very distorted. It was not good. Mm-mm-mm. So at any rate, we're back. Hi. And today we are discussing that time a while back when Edward I stole the Stone of Schoon, and so this is in Schoon, Scotland, in 1296. That's what we're talking about today. And we have we have really enjoyed learning about this. I was looking forward to it oh, anyway. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> this was great. This was great. I had such a great time doing the research for this. <laughs> <laughs> I did too, and yeah, I did too. So our background, we'll start with our background. Edward I of England, who had become king in 1274, was really, really, really good at conquering and subjugating his neighbors. Oh, man. It's like, it's his superpower. He's super he good at this. He is, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, it doesn't make us happy, but there you are. He had conquered Wales in 1283 and built Norman castles all over it. And after that, Scotland, which had been having um, a succession crisis, and we talked in great detail about this in our podcast uh, about Robert the Bruce killing John Coman at the high altar. Scotland had been having a succession crisis, and he had gotten involved in that. And in brief, the succession crisis, which is called the Great Cause. I think that's a hilarious name for a succession crisis, but... (laughs) I know! I ran across that term. What the heck is that? I thought maybe cause. I thought maybe it was independence. No, 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 no. Because I that would yeah, make totally, sense. That would make sense to me. The great cause would be independence, but no, no. It was trying to figure out who was going to be king. Um, there were thirteen claimants to the throne of Scotland, and all at at the time of this succession crisis. And the guardians of Scotland had asked King Edward to arbitrate, which he did. But as a condition, he required feudal allegiance from Scotland. And then he gave the crown to John Balliol, who was weak. And then he took, um, he took over Scottish rulings and he ordered the Scottish king to come to the English court to be subject to English law. Balliol renounced his feudal homage in March 1296. And so England invaded Scotland. Ta-da-da, ta-da-da. Um, you might suspect, as I do, 
that Edward had actually engineered all of this just so as to have a reason for invading. The war would last in different stages until the 1st of May, 1328, when Edward III would sign the Treaty of Edinburgh, Northampton, which recognized the independence of Scotland and Robert the Bruce was king. Things would fall apart and Edward III would invade and start the Second War of Scottish Independence in 1333, which was going to last till 1357. But, spoiler for history, eventually James VI of Scotland who was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, inherited the English throne. And so the personal union of the two countries existed at that time, and it would become a political union in 1707. Campaigns to leave the union and be independent, um, Scottish independence started in 1853, and that kept going on until today. Uh, and actually, that's going to matter. It's not just looking into the future. It's going to matter to the Stone of Scone discussion. But at the moment, so right now where we are, the pro-independence party has won a majority of, of votes in the Scottish Parliament, but they've said that they're not, there's not going to be a referendum and because of the, until we're out of the whole COVID pandemic. Which <laughs> and, and Brexit really changed the politics of that because in the last referendum, uh, it just squeaked past to stay with England. Yeah. But, but I suspect that that might go differently now, now, that, now that England has left the... Yeah, Scotland might eventually, might actually vote for independence. Yeah. So so here we are. Now, now we're going to go back to 1296. Okay, shoom, back to 1296. Edward I invaded on account of Scotland had had broken its feudal its, its feudal homage. Oh, really? Oh, come on. Anyway, so he invaded. And one of the places that he trashed, as you trash places if you're invading, was Schoon, because it was, at that time, the seat of royal authority in Scotland. Uh, it's Edinburgh now, but it was and, and but it was schooned in. So it's where the kings were crowned or made official. There weren't really uh, coronations at, at that time, but they were they were officially made kings. Whilst trashing places and killing people, Edward also acquired what we now call spoils of war. That's not what they were called then, but that's what we call them now. And spoils of war generally are like prisoners, which in the Middle Ages you get prisoners and then you could get ransom for them. So that was some money there. Or you might get horses or equipment or various treasures. As for instance, when the Venetian crusaders took the bronze statues of the horses of the horses in Constantinople at the Hippodrome, they took them to St. Mark's Basilica. That was spoils of war. It was a stupid bad war and actually a giant crime, but it was spoils of war. Okay, spoils of war do not generally involve big rocks. Rocks aren't worth money unless they're made out of gold or silver, which this isn't, and they're very heavy. So they might be movable goods, but only just. But Edward took the stone, which weighs about, by the way, 335 pounds, out of Schoon Abbey and dragged it back to Westminster Abbey and put it under the seat of a wooden throne. He made that throne specifically. Yes, he did. He took the stone of Schoon back and he made a chair for it. This, so why? So then we have, what is this 335 pound rock that is worth dragging 
from Schoon to London. The stone was brought to Schoon by Kenneth McAlpin, who was the king of the Picts and um, what would become Scotland, after Vikings had made staying at the abbey at Iona completely untenable. And so it had been, um, uh, (laughs) what do you call it? There's a word for it. Abandoned? Yeah, thank you. So it had been abandoned. Uh, and he moved, the, he moved the relics to Dunkeld, and he took the stone to Schoon. It had gotten to Iona. Well, we don't really know. We don't know how it actually had gotten there. But the story is that Jacob had used it as the pillow he was sleeping on when um, he dreamed of angels and that ladder going up and down to heaven. A very uncomfortable pillow. I don't want to sleep myself on 335-pound rocks, but whatever. And then it went all around. It went to Egypt and Spain and blah, blah, blah. And it ended up at Tara, where Irish kings were crowned and finally got discovered. But no, this actually didn't happen. And the reason we know this didn't happen, besides the fact that this is a very fanciful story, it doesn't really fit with history as usual, is that the the sandstone, which the stone is made out of, is from around Schoon. So, no, it was from there. And so maybe McAlpin did bring a stone from Iona to Schoon, but it wasn't this one. So at any rate, this comes from the area. But it was there at any rate, and McAlpin established it. That was in about 843. Either the king sat on it when they were getting invested or it was an altar, but there it was. And it was a very important symbol of the sovereignty of Scotland. And that is why Edward stole it. So he took it to Westminster Abbey and he put it in a coronation chair. And Robert the Bruce was going to be the next Scottish king crowned, but not on that stone because, you know, he was in Schoon Abbey, but he wasn't on the stone. It wasn't at the stone. And that was in 1306. In 1328... England was supposed to return the stone to Schoon as part of a peace treaty, but the abbot wouldn't give it up. It was apparently chained to the floor. And um, and then the abbot spruced up the gilding on the chair, on uh, apparently because it was so exciting that, was, that they were getting to keep the relic. So it stayed in England. And even though it belonged in Scotland, it had been stolen from Scotland, and England said they were giving it back, England did not. And so English kings got crowned on it. They've been using it. They've been using it. <laughs> Though after James the Sixth, the first, which James the Sixth slash the first took over, it, it was Scottish kings too. But uh, you know, the English kings have been British kings have been getting crowned there, and for a while they were only just English. Until, until, and now we come into the second part of the stealing of the Stone of Scone in 1950. Four Scottish students, they were from the University of Glasgow, uh, they were, and they were part of a group that championed Scottish independence. They drove down to London. They were, um, it's an 18-hour trip, we are told, and they got into Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey at night, and they took the stone out from under the chair. It broke into two pieces. I, I found that quite alarming. Um, but they got the two pieces into two cars, and they got away. And the larger piece was so heavy that the springs on the car sagged badly. So how the hell they were going to get it back if they hadn't actually broken it? I don't know. But at any rate, they um, they got it back to Scotland, and they added the two pieces. They got the two pieces back to Scotland, and they paid a stonemason to put the two pieces back together. He did this with a brass rod. Uh, and they took the stone to Arbereth Abbey, which there there had been a treaty there. One of the one of the many peace treaties had been there. 
because uh, Schoon Abbey was long gone. There wasn't any abbey. You couldn't go back to Schoon. You could go to the place, but you can't go to the abbey. Although um, they have, they've set up um, like a, a kind of like a stone there to memorialize where the stone of Schoon was at Schoon. So you can see that, but the abbey's gone. And eventually it was taken back to Westminster Abbey in February of 1952. So it had about a year of liberation. And by the way, the police knew exactly who had taken the stone, but the students weren't prosecuted because it would not, it would have been politically problematic to do that. Can you imagine? Scotland was going to go really up in arms if you prosecuted students for stealing things that actually belonged to Scotland. Uh, Sir Henry Shawcross said in Parliament that it, it was just a, it was just vulgar vandalism. It showed disregard for the Abbey, and then, so they just weren't even going to pay attention to it at all. <laughs> yeah, right. But the students were very popular and quite vocal about the whole thing. Ian Hamilton, who's now a lawyer and a politician, wrote a book about it. He's 95. He's not dead yet. Gavin Vernon, who is now dead, was an engineer. And on the 50th anniversary of the return of the stone to Westminster, he went to that ceremony. And Westminster let him in for a special visit. The person who, uh, who opened the door said, welcome back, Mr. Vernon. <laughs> uh, I, I like that part. Kay Matheson, the only woman in the group, she had been driving one of the cars, became a teacher and a Gaelic scholar. She's dead as well. And Alan Stewart, who's also now dead, became a Glasgow businessman. And now, now the stone is back in Scotland. It's at Perth City Hall. Uh, Schoon is, was close to Perth. And it became an... It, in, it's, it's at Perth City Hall because in 1996, the British government, in an attempt to be conciliatory because more Scottish referendums were right around the corner, they declared that the stone would go back to Scotland and it would stay there unless the British people needed it for coronations. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens at the next coronation. Will the stone of Scone be taken back to Westminster? Because you know what? I'm betting money. Nope, I don't think it's going. <laughs> but it's it's only it's only on loan. They didn't return it to Scotland. It's it's on loan, which I think is a dick move. I'm just going to be honest. If you're <laughs> going to go through all this, oh, it's been 700 years. We feel bad about it. Please don't vote to leave. Will here's your rock band. <laughs> Here's your rock back, but not really. We still own that. It's the most British thing ever. <laughs> so English. I totally agree with all this. I totally do. Yep. <laughs> but you know, the thing is, it's going to be hard to hide, though. I mean, I'm reminded of, I won't name the city, but there's a, um, there's a city in England where I was doing research, and there were these manuscripts that were from there that were supposed to be being held in um, a, a different city library altogether. Uh, and what this city would do, it would say, we really need the medieval manuscript of the blah, 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 because we're having a ceremony. And so then that would get loaned to them. And then, oddly enough, it never went back because they couldn't find it. It was gone. It used to be here, but now it's gone. But to see, you can do that with manuscripts, but I don't know if you can do that with a 335-pound rock. I, I don't, I think 
they're going to have to be, I think Scotland's going to have to be just more direct than that and say, no, you may not have the stone back, which is actually our stone go away. It would, it would be so much more politically savvy to have said, here it is, here it's back, it's yours, may we borrow it. Yes. Next time, it's time to crown somebody. Yes, yes. Not, we lifted, it's ours, we're taking it back anytime we want. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I, I would have liked that. That would have been a good move. But we'd we'd really love to be able to borrow it. Could, do you think you could agree to that? But we know it's your stone, but we've gotten so fond of it, and it looks really good in the chair. <laughs> we haven't we haven't yet accepted that you're like full <laughs> participants in this union. You're still the lesser partner. Yeah, yeah, we're leaving. Go, we're leaving you, stupid people. <laughs> we've taken our rock and leaving. <laughs> That's what I think. I had seen a claim that independence from England is the most um, commonly celebrated holiday around the globe. And I went to try to find out if that's... <laughs> oh, God, we have one, don't we? <laughs> I know. 52 countries have independence from England as a, as a holiday. And um, according to QI, which they're usually right on top of things... Um, Roughly every seven days, somewhere around the globe, a country is celebrating independence from England. You know who needs to learn to stay home and mind their own business? It would be the English. <laughs> it's like, here's, yeah, they definitely, they need to give the rocks back. <laughs> they did the same thing in Wales. Did you know that? I didn't know that. They, he stole, Edward I, when he conquered Wales, stole their regalia as well and it has disappeared oh yeah I'm sure it has. Least the stone still exists he didn't grind yeah. it down or something um but the welsh regalia there was a crown and there was something else and it's gone it just disappeared into the back never to be seen again uh you know they've melted it down at some point to pay for one of the wars of conquest during that last um, 10 years of his reign, Edward I spent a million pounds on war because he was, he was, he had problems in Scotland. Of course, he was trying to take over Scotland. You could just stay home and mind your own goddamn business, but no. Oh, they, they broke their feudal agreement, Michelle. Surely you see that that is a, a valid reason to go and slaughter them and steal their rocks. Surely you understand that. There, there was trouble in Wales because, of course, any time anytime Edward isn't looking directly at them, there's trouble in Wales. Absolutely. And there's, and there's trouble in Gascony because Philip yes. IV is sneaky, and he had he had usually Edward I is pretty trickstery. There's a few um, incidents from his life that are very tricky, such as, for example, when. Before he was before he was king during the Barons' War, Simon de Montfort was up in arms, literally against Henry the Third, and Edward, the prince at that point's army, intercepted reinforcements that were coming, um, headed by Simon de Montfort's two oldest sons. He he captured them and he took the banners and he put them in front of his own army, which allowed him to get closer to Simon de Montfort's army before they realized that it was a trick. 
Yeah, I remember this. Yes, he's very sneaky. But anyway, he got he got the trickster got tricked by Philip the Fourth with this Gascony thing because he got told, okay, we have to act in public like I'm going to take Gascony from you, but really what's going to happen is I'm going to grant it back to you. And of course that part didn't happen. <laughs> it was like the stone of scone. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to take it for a while, but you can have it. <laughs> so Edward really, really wanted to go kick ass over in Gascony and, and take his land back, take, take this, this um, area back that had historically been his, but He's just he's just bleeding money trying to prosecute mm-hmm. all these wars in all these different places, and he ends up. It actually reading of Edward the First made me a little bit more sympathetic to, sympathetic to Edward the Second because he inherited a mess. Yeah, he inherited a mess, and it looked then like well, you know, his father was so you know strong and did so many things. Yes, he did, and left a mess for the son who was not the kind of king he was anyway. Yeah, it wasn't fair. I learned some really interesting stuff about Edward I from this reading. He was, at the time of his death, he was the longest lived English king. Really? How old was he? 68. Well, that is pretty good. Yeah, yeah he, he lived to a ripe old age. Um, part of what caused his death was how mad he was at Robert the Bruce. <laughs> he like had a stroke or something. He was so angry um, when he found out that Robert the Bruce had... Uh, rebelled. He, his health just starts into this precipitous decline. He's actually, you know, trying to raise an army and get up there, and he eventually just dies by the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's so angry about it. Um, yeah, he was never really, really able to make the Scots behave. Yeah. I learned that he was the most widely traveled English monarch until the modern age. Whoa. He had been everywhere. He'd been Wales and Scotland and France and Sicily, and he was on crusade. Um, That's right. Mm-hmm. He nearly got assassinated in while well, he was on crusade. Yeah, he's an interesting dude. Um, I I enjoy reading about him. That doesn't necessarily mean that doesn't necessarily mean I'm more sympathetic to him, but I did find it very interesting to read about him. Um, I find him interesting, but I do not like him. Hammer of the Scots and Curse of Wales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he flat up robbed the Templar um, headquarters in London, which I actually want to circle back to at some point as a separate crime. Okay, because we actually have we've we've covered the Templars, but we we can talk about that particular piece of it because we were focusing on um, the fact they all got slaughtered in France. Yeah. He broke in and robbed them in order to finance their resistance to Simon de Montfort. <laughs> Good Lord. Well, what else did you find out? Because you were telling me you found out many lovely things. I did. I, I learned so much stuff. It was great. Um, I did. I very much enjoyed reading about Edward. <laughs> let's not forget that the whole point we're here today is that he stole the i know i do know that i, I know but <laughs> i'm not gonna say that he has his good parts i he's very he's very competent he's a very competent king who follows an incompetent one henry the third is so bad at his job that right the barons take over and make him a puppet and say you know you can't do anything without us approving mm-hmm. it and yeah. we end up we end up in a in a civil war, which, you know, if you've been 
paying attention, it's that second civil war in two generations because before the generation before this, it was um, Stephen and and Ma and uh, Matilda. Henry the Third just. This just wasn't his jam. He he wasn't interested in tournaments. He would go and fight wars, but kind of half-heartedly. And so people were mad at him because he he it would be different if he had all the taxes and then won, but he had all the taxes and kept losing. Mm. And the the lesson Edward took was if you fight, you better win. And generally speaking, there's there's only one battle that he was in that he lost, and it was his first one. The Battle of Lewis. Huh. So he got really good at battles real quick. Oh yeah. He he figured out real quickly that if the if the throne was gonna survive, it was up to him because Henry the Third was really bad. Now he was a I'm not saying he was a bad person. He, you know, appears to have been a lovely person and, and very devout, but not so great as what what a medieval monarch needs to be. Whereas Edward was very good at at what the job demanded, which was often to be to be quite a bad person. Um, he was devoted to his wife. That is one thing we can. Yeah, it's one of the um, it's one of the royal uh, connections, one of the royal marriages that actually seems to have been good. They had at least 16 pregnancies which implies they liked each other fairly well. And to the best of my knowledge, Edward does not have illegitimate children. Which is very unusual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They have a lot of children together, but, and they lose a lot of children. Mm. Um, Edward the second is not their oldest son. He's not even their second son. He's the third or possibly the fourth of their sons. He's young when, when, Eleanor of Castile finally gives it up, you know, after all those pregnancies and dies. But yes, it was very bad of him to steal, to steal <laughs> the stone. He did a lot of bad things. <laughs> and it's one of those things that I really, I, I think it's important because it sounds so obscure, right? The, the king of England in 1293 made off with this block of sandstone that the Scots had used for hundreds of years to crown their kings and it supposedly makes a noise when the right king sits on it oh i didn't know that part what is the noise it supposedly is i don't know like a whoopee cushion or something where it groans <laughs> the right if the right king sits on it, it goes <laughs> which would be hysterical if it actually happened <laughs> it would it would i wonder if it does it anymore now that there's that brass rod through it it makes a broken sound box so this is one of the things that's so great about medieval history, right? You would think that this would matter to exactly nobody, but it turns out it matters to everybody. It mattered that they stole it and it mattered that they kept it. And it mattered enough that in 1950, four Scottish nationalists decided to steal it back because number one, they had just seen Ireland get their independence. Hey, why not us? And Two, the the kind of cultural genocide what against Scotland and Ireland was proceeding apace. Scotland, after 1707, Scotland was often not called Scotland officially. It was called North Britain. Oh, no. I, no, no. Yeah. No. Yes. I thought that that part was made up, but that's real. I looked it up. Oh, no. No, I didn't know that, and I'm appalled. Because Ireland far west Britain and the Wales was West Britain. <laughs>
there's that remark in uh, James Joyce's The Dead, uh, you know, that, that uh, Gabriel's a West Briton. Oh, you know, Mm-hmm. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I don't know. I didn't look that up. Maybe Ireland was called West Britain. <laughs> or I don't know whether that is true in general or whether it's just Joyce's joke. I don't know. So I have a little bit more about, um, about the theft in 1950. Um, uh-huh. I did not know this. Maybe you probably knew this going in, but I had never heard of this. And I enjoyed every moment of learning about this. Ian Hamilton is a firecracker. That's the one who's still alive, right? Yes. At least as of this recording, yes. He becomes a QC. He becomes, uh, which I think is a prosecutor. And when he is sworn to the bar in 1954, there's a whole kerfuffle because he doesn't want to swear allegiance to King to Queen Elizabeth II because Scotland does not have an Elizabeth II. She's an Elizabeth I. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't actually win. No, he got got told that, you know, for heaven's sakes, just swear the oath. And monarchs are allowed to number themselves as they wish. (laughs) He wrote a book not terribly long after the theft, 1952 maybe 1953 called stone of destiny where he lays out this is what we did and then it was reissued with some editing um and a new introduction in 2008 when a movie was released based on it have you seen this movie i have seen this movie oh ooh, 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 ooh. I am here to tell you that if you want to spend a wee little bit of time being Scottish and enjoying their bid for independence, this is the place to go and not Braveheart. For one thing, uh, yeah, a no, much we, higher percentage of what happens in the in the movie is true. Yay. Well, so little, that's really a low bar when we're talking about Braveheart, frankly, so but still. And it is a delightful mix of a farce and a heist movie. <laughs> oh, I'm so totally going and finding this. So many things go wrong during the course of their theft, right? So the, the original plan is that Ian Hamilton is supposed to um, sneak into one of the chapels that is under construction and hide there under a tarp. Only he gets discovered by the uh-huh. night watchman and the night watchman thinks he's a homeless person who has, who has tried to find a place to stay where it's mm. basically warm and tosses him out. Okay. Um, yeah. Because it really wouldn't have occurred to the night watchman that he was there to steal the stone of spoon. Right. So then they have to, then they have to actually kind of come in through one of the doors, which they come in through the only door that's made out of pine because it had had to be replaced after the war. The rest of them are all oak. And they figure that's the engineers, the two engineers in the group, Alan and Gavin, figure out this is the only way we're getting in. You're not you're not breaking through oak. So they right. come in, they come in through there, they they break the stone, right? So it's just a farce. And then the stone by dropping it when they took it out of the chair is that what happened no what happened was um it has handles on each end and when they tried to move it the handle and part of the stone on one end cracked right off oh well it is a very old rock to be to be sure 
<laughs> yeah. So then he drops the car. Then um, they're using Ian's coat to slide it across the stones the, of the of the the Abbey the, of Westminster Abbey, and his car keys fall out. <laughs> and he has to come back later, and he, all he's got are matches. He's forgotten the flashlight. He has a book of matches. He's lighting one by one to try to find his car keys. Oh, good lord! I know it's. You watch the movie. I watched the movie before I read his book. Um, And I went back to read the book thinking, surely some of this stuff got added. Pretty much not. At the (laughs) end, where they they go in two different directions and they hide because now they've broken the stone in two pieces. So they send Kay off in one car with one piece of it. And Ian and Alan go off in the other car. They leave Gavin to take the train home because they figure the car can't handle one more person plus three quarters of the stone so they go off to hide it and they they pick a random field and hide it and when they come back for it um alan's father is concerned alan's father is a stonemason and he is concerned that after having been inside for 600 years that that sandstone may not do so well with the dead of winter so he makes him go back and collect it fairly quickly and when they do there's a gypsy encampment (laughs) <laughs> right on top of where they hit it so they have to basically talk to the gypsies and say like hey, hey can we excuse us can we have this rock and they say wait until this guy this one guy leaves because he's an outsider he's from the town he'll rat you out mm. but once he leaves they they help him they help them get it in the car. Of course they do. Yay the yay the Romany. <laughs> yay the Romany. Yes, yes. There, there's according to Ian in his book, he talks about how one of the guys who's with him um, gives this whole speech to the gypsies about how we really value freedom and you value freedom. The English have been bad to you. They've been bad to us. We've done this thing that's illegal but not immoral. Can you help us? And the gypsies are like, yeah. We're good with that. That's we hate them too. <laughs> it's and you think this has to be made up. But no. But by and large, it's not. It's what they have it's such a farce. It's such a farce. And it makes a delightful movie. You have to get past the fact that Daredevil, Rumpelstiltskin, and Peregrine Took are plotting to steal back the Stone of Destiny because that's the actors. Um... Charlie Cox is Ian Hamilton. I was already a big Charlie Cox fan. I am an even bigger Charlie Cox fan now. So we have to forget that we know the actors from elsewhere. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise it gets really weird really fast. I guess I guess it would, yeah. Why does Daredevil want the Stone of Destiny? Why is Pippin why is Pippin helping him? <laughs> it actually is a really fun movie. I mean, it's not a life-changing movie, but it's a lot of fun. And it definitely is much more of a, you know, better film to have your solidarity. If you want to have your solidarity with Scotland, go here all right much better um by the way the influence on scottish national identity of this is enormous nobody rats them out no nobody ratted them out 
Nobody rats them out. They're all, everybody is celebrating this. They're, they're not prosecuted because the English are concerned that they will literally have riots in the street. Right, because the Scots are so happy with them. And now the song that is played at Scottish sporting events is Flower of Scotland. It has emerged. It was written in 1967. It has emerged as an unofficial national anthem. And it is all about driving Edward I out of Scotland. Isn't that wild? So, I mean, this is the great thing about history. All this, these things that seem completely obscure matter. Mm-hmm. This, this, this matters right now to how Scotland thinks about itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it really matters that uh, English kings were, were crowned on this symbol of Scottish sovereignty for hundreds of years. Yeah, it... it it really, really does. I, I'm happy to report that Ian Hamilton's book is is well worth reading. Okay. For one thing, he's quite a good writer. Well, he had an interesting life. Did you find anything out about um, Kay? I'm interested, you know, this in the one woman who's part of this whole heist. I found her obituary. Mm. Um, it was in, I found her obituary and Alan's obituary and Gavin's obituary. That was kind of sad. I was like, are any of them still alive? And I finally found Ian Hamilton, who's still alive. He was in the movie, by the way. He has a he has a he has a cameo. What is he what is he doing? He is an English um uh shopkeeper. <laughs> That's a good one. He's on Twitter. <laughs> he tweets. I, I'm definitely going to find him. He's a hoot and a half. I had to look up so many words in his book because he keeps throwing just random Scots words in there. Uh-huh. Well, they're not really random. <laughs> for me, for me, I had never heard of things like Ken Speckle, <laughs> which apparently means um, to be noticeable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. Or to, to stand out. Mm-hmm. Ken Speckle. I, so I learned some new words. Yes, yes. I was very happy to discover the the uh, bookend theft mm-hmm. to yes. the twelve ninety six one. I like it that it got stolen back, and I like it that it's been um, given back, although only like really lent. So as I say, I don't believe I don't believe it's ever going back to Westminster. I think that's over. You know, I don't know because the English monarchy is on such thin ice anyway that. How do they try to be pushy about this? I mean, this is one of the things that happened to them when the theft happened. They they hadn't learned. They'd learned a wee little bit, you know, after shooting everybody in Ireland led to a national revolt and then independence. So they learned a tiny bit. Nobody went to jail. But they completely... They're still they're still really angry about it. And and they closed the border between England and Scotland for the first time in 400 years. To check all after the theft in 1950, they closed the border to check all the cars going back over to Scotland. Yeah, and this was after there had already been a treaty that they would give the stone back. Yeah, there's a, there is an awful lot of uh, political emotion that is invested in that in that stone. Wikipedia does not call this a theft, by the way. Oh. It calls it. It calls it a removal. A removal. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering where their sympathies were. I like that. Although I myself 
think of it as a liberation, but I go further than Wikipedia did. Yeah, I got liberated. Stone of Scone got liberated. One of my favorite pieces of Ian Hamilton's book um, is when they were trying to figure out how heavy the stone is going to be. He goes to John McCormick, who, who this is one of the changes in the updated version of the book. He could not name John McCormick in 1954 because John McCormick was the head of the Scottish independence movement. Uh, and so it could, not, it could not come out that he had helped with this. Right, no. So he goes to him and says, okay, we got this plan, but you're never going to believe this, but I have done all this reading about the stone and nowhere does it say what it actually weighs. And he says, I can help you. And he takes him to a stonemason who has a replica of the stone because the previous generation's bunch of Scottish nationalists, of which Don McCormick was one of them, had concocted a plan to steal it back and swap it with that replica. Oh, that would have been brilliant. And they had made that replica. They had this whole plan that was awesome. They had a, a plan for a daring daylight raid that was going to involve um, an oversized wheelchair and a, a, a space under it for for the stone. And they were going to swap it for the stone and put the replica in its place. And England would be none the wiser. They got defeated like the Daleks by stairs. Yeah, there's stairs. Mm-hmm. There are stairs going up to where the coronation Yeah, so you can slide the stone down the stairs on your coat, but you can't take it. Yeah, and it was the 50s, so there wasn't like, uh, it it wasn't, um, it hadn't been all fitted up so that you could take measures. Yeah, and that plan was from the, that plan was from the 20s or 30s because it's it's the the prior generation. But yeah, they had a, they had a replica there for them to practice with. I didn't know that. But, you know, if you're going to swap it out, and so then you have the real Stone of Schoon and you've gone on back to Scotland, you have to tell people. It isn't like England was never going to find out because at some point you go, yay, yay, look what we have here. Party down, party down, celebration. Here is our Stone of Schoon back where it belongs. And at that point, England was going to find out what you've done. Right. And... Um, Ian Hamilton talks about this in his book that they realized fairly quickly after the theft that they were going to have to return it because people were getting really anxious. The Scottish people were getting anxious, not knowing where it was. And it was turning, it was turning popular opinion against them. So that was why they took it back to the ruins of Arboeth Abbey and and phoned in that it was there. And they figured that that was, a test for England. Were they going to haul it right back to Westminster Abbey? Yes. Or were they going to maybe take the hint and leave it? And of course, what they did was they bundled it right back to Westminster Abbey right away because um, they can't, they have no humor about themselves, I guess. I don't know. They have very good humor, but not about the Stone of Spoon. Well, it was spoils of war. And see, that's the thing about spoils of war. Spoils of war are things you take by force and they are yours rightfully because you were bigger at that moment, you know. So that's the thing about spoils of war. You don't generally get them back. But he didn't ultimately. It's funny because he took it, but ultimately this conquest was unsuccessful. Yep. Edward was not able to make it stick. Nope. Partially because he was pretty old at that point. I 
10 years earlier, he might have been able to pull it off. But Edward was in his 60s by that point. Well, this was the first war of Scottish independence, and there's going to be a second war of Scottish independence, and then Scotland's going to be independent until the thrones get allied because of James. And then, of course, in the 18th century, there's the political union. And this is this um, this is an interesting crime, right? Because that this is one one other one of those the people at the time. Well, partially, it depends on your time your your perspective, right? The English would not have seen it as a crime. The Scots did. did and continue to do. Yeah. Um, but as you say, spoil of war, that was fairly common mm. to take something. But yeah. it's so interesting because, you know, taking regalia from Wales, that is normal, you know? Like, I will take your crown and your gold and your scepter and a bunch of cows. I mean, that's it. But, but to take that giant rock because it's a symbol, that's... That was, I don't like it, but I can see how clever it was because it was an absolute symbol that Scotland was to be subjugated. So I don't really have too much else about this. I um, I enjoyed it an awful lot. I enjoyed reading about Edward I, who I guess had always been in the background for me for Edward II, but mm. I hadn't really had a chance to look at him directly. And I know him, so I, I know him. Because of Scotland, but mostly because of Wales and so. So, so the Stone of Scone is back in Perth, at least, close to where it was. And Scotland has it back. And we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens at the next coronation. And we'll also see what happens at the next referendum after the plague is over. Yeah, it, it barely, it barely failed uh, last time. So it may, it may pass this time. Oh, yeah, it was so disappointing. Well, the next time we meet, so that's, so that's our discussion of the Stone of Scone. We are, we're glad it's back in Scotland, and we think it was, we are of the opinion that it was a crime to take it out. That's what we think. That's our discussion. And the next time that you hear from us, we will be, we'll be way far away different time. We'll be in 782 in Saxony. Because Charlemagne massacred the Saxons, and so we're going to talk about that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Every once in a while, we have to go back, back, back in time, back in time, I tell you. I don't know anything about this, so this will... It'll give us a chance to talk about Charlemagne and, you know, make fun of the Frankish system of giving the kingdom to all kinds of children instead of trying to keep it together. So that's what we'll do. Yeah. Well, this has been True Crime Medieval, um, where the crimes are just like they are today, only with less technology. Although, yeah, with less technology, because Edward I did not have cars. They were, you know. But those were the cars they were working with. This is actually a really interesting They were little sedans. Yeah, that one of them, they had two. One of them is only an eight horsepower car. (laughs) So this is this is why it took up eighteen hours mm-hmm. because and it wasn't the safest thing to be doing in the dead of winter. The one of the cars doesn't have antifreeze, so they have to. There's one time where they have to sleep in their car after he gets booted out the first night, and they have to wait till the next night to take another shot at it. They have to sleep in their cars, and they're having to wake up every two hours to to start that car and drive it around a little bit so that it doesn't freeze solid and break the head gasket. There's no heater in the car. They're freezing on the drive. It's, it's it's winter and it's a particularly cold 
December. They they plan this for Christmas Day because they figure everybody is going to be so slosh they won't be paying attention. Right. Well, and so this is simply, uh, this is a function of having university students stealing. (laughs) These are are the kinds of cars that you have when you're a student, you know. Yeah, it's, it's they're not even theirs. One of them is rented and the other one, the whole reason Alan's allowed to go is he has access to a car. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a shoestring operation. (laughs) In this case, we had two crimes. Uh, The crimes were just the same, except one had like better, one had, one had car transportation. The other had probably, Edward had an easier time getting that thing back since (laughs) working with carts and horses. (sighs) We... (laughs) We can be found on Spotify and Stitcher and Apple Podcasts and all the places where the podcasts are hanging out. Uh, and you can reach us and um, find links to the podcast and links to the show notes and the transcriptions at truecrimemedieval.com. True Crime Medieval is all one word. And Michelle does the show notes, show notes and Lori Dietrich does the transcriptions. And I'm the one that does like the picture and the, the 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 picture and the little blurb explaining what we're doing. That's that's what we're all doing. Yeah, leave comments uh, and leave reviews. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have crimes, medieval crimes that you think we should pay attention to, please let us know. Uh, we'll take them under consideration. And we're always looking for medieval crimes because it was 1,000 years. There's always something we're missing. This was one of those yummy episodes where I, I walked away with like six things to add to our list. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. So we'll have, so you will add to our list. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So that's all for us. Bye. Bye. Bye.